0: Hello and welcome to Red Star Radio. It is the podcast brought to you by the Marx-Engels Institute. And today we are returning to our most regular topic, that of the Russia-NATO war that takes place on the territory of the country formerly known as Ukraine. And today it's going to be a show where we go through the various different details of the military picture and then look at some revelations that have come out over the past few days. So, turning first to the military situation. Now, things at the moment still are in the same state as uh, when we last spoke over a week ago, which is that, of course, following the Russian victory in Solodar, the Wagner organisation, backed up by fighters from the Forces of the Donetsk People's Republic, of course now formally incorporated into the armed forces of the Russian Federation, continue their advance around the town of Artemovsk or Bakhmut, if you prefer the Ukrainian pronunciation, and the battle there continues to be, by accounts given by both Russian and Ukrainian sources, a complete horror in that the sheer number of Ukrainians that are dying and being maimed there continues to grow every day. The Ukrainian armed forces continue their dragooning of men into their army, including people who are quite obviously severely disabled, including those who are partially sighted, those who have difficulty moving. And you have to wonder what the hell all this uh, is for. How much can a blind man really do on the front line other than just die how much can somebody who can't walk properly do other than just die and it comes down to really uh, what is happening in Ukraine it seems that these clowns that they've got running around handing out these summonses for service they must be being given a target to work to and told you have to hand out these many uh, summonses per day if you want to stay off the front line yourselves. I mean, that's just my educated guess, but I think that that is probably what is going on here because these cowardly pieces of crap that they've got running around handing out these summonses to military service. Apparently, and again, this is according to Ukrainian sources, these guys are guys who paid to not be on the front line. They paid, as often happens in these wars, to be behind the lines serving in inverted commas, as like military recruiters, disciplinary units, people who are rich enough, just rich enough to pay a bribe to stay off the front line for a while. And they have to deliver a certain number of summonses per day so that if they want to retain that status of not being blown up by a Russian artillery shell. So they're handing these things out to everybody. These recruits, forced recruits, the men they are press-ganging into service, What are they going to be trained to do? Now, according to videos that have been released by the Russian side, literally these men are given an old Kalashnikov dating from like the middle of the Soviet period and shoved into a trench somewhere near Artemovsk and told, stand there. And that's it. None of this uh, fancy NATO training for these guys. They're trying to do the same thing that they did back in the summer of last year, which is that they are trying to build a force outside of Ukraine by training troops in Britain, in Germany, in France and elsewhere and the United States of course to use all the modern NATO equipment that they're desperately piling into Ukraine and then at the same time as that they are using this cannon fodder approach to try and hold up the Russian advance. Now this worked and I use the word worked to very cautiously there, for the Ukrainians last autumn in precisely one area, which is up around Kharkov, because when they tried this new force out down near Kherson, when it was still properly defended, they lost ten to 12,000 men, killed and severely wounded. And then it worked up in Kharkov because the only people left there were lightly armed police regiment troops, who withdrew in good order, largely, from the Ukrainian assault And the Russians were able to then hold a more solid line when they'd retreated from around Kharkov. So that was the one area this worked in. And they lost a huge amount of men in doing uh, that in terms of taking the territory around Kharkov back. And they're hoping to do something similar. And that's why they're throwing all of these poor bastards into the mix and why they're chasing around with the collaboration of the British government. And this is according to a British guy who sent a letter through to South Front, the uh, Russian telegram channel and uh, military reporting service, a letter that this guy who's uh, hosting Ukrainian refugee family, including a man of military age, um, this guy gets a letter from the British government saying, please report on the Ukrainian refugees you have there. We have information that one of them at least is of military age and maybe of interest to the Ukrainian authorities. And this is happening in uh, multiple European countries. They are scouring around for all the men that left, trying to find them, scoop them up, send them back to Ukraine. Maybe they'll be, these guys will get a little bit lucky, again, heavy inverted commas around the lucky, and they'll be taken for this training course in Britain before they're sent back. So they won't just be pure cannon fodder, they'll be better trained cannon fodder which is a great way in many respects for these European countries to deal with their refugee problems if the Ukrainian authorities are going to say, well, send all the men back. Well, that deals with a uh, something of, a, of the problem that the more eastern-lying countries are having by scooping up all the men, sending them back to die horrifically on the Ukrainian front line. And, of course, the Western governments are all well on board with this. The more Ukrainians die, the better, to paraphrase Lindsey Graham. So this is a horror, what is being done, and it is a fruitless horror as well, because the American military and some of the civilian leaders who haven't just completely buried their heads in the sand, and the British military too, all the military commanders in NATO know very well that this isn't going to end well. This isn't going to lead to some sort of Ukrainian victory. The RAND Corporation, the Pentagon's big think tank, they know that it's going to end badly, which is why they're now saying, well, pivot to China, dump Ukraine and get out. So everybody knows that this is coming to a grisly end at some points before the end of summer, given that the Russians, as always, are in no hurry. And yet this continues, and it continues to be enacted Because the US empire cannot admit, cannot be seen to admit, a defeat to the Russians. Even though, of course, formally speaking, it's not their forces that have lost. But in effect, that's how it will be seen. So they are, again, sacrificing Ukraine whilst their paid propagandists in the media scream and shout and bellow about Ukrainian sovereignty, support Ukraine and all that, whilst sending hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians to die in increasingly horrific conditions. And this, of course, brings us to a connection with the revelations that have emerged over the past 24 hours from former Israeli Premier Naftali Bennett. Now, Bennett was Prime Minister in this time last year, in the very early part of the Russian special military operation. And, of course, the Israelis have a rather complex relationship with modern Russia, in that, on the one hand, they are somewhat adversaries inside Syria, but Netanyahu, the wily old criminal who uh, runs Israel and has done for many, many years, he's back in charge again now with an increasingly batshit, genocidal right-wing government beside him. People who are so right-wing, they make him look like some sort of moderate, which I think is kind of the point, from his point of view anyway. But he and, of course, Bennett and Ya'el Lapid, who followed Bennett into the Prime Minister's office, They have all tried to keep this balance uh, in not going into conflict with the Russians directly because it wouldn't be a conflict that the Israelis would win. And also they are trying to manage things so that the Russians don't give the Syrians all the latest air defence systems that could easily shoot down Israeli jets that are carrying out bombing raids against Syrian targets. There's a very delicate balancing act going on there by the Israelis and it's of course why they haven't Given the Iron Dome technology to the Ukrainians, not that I don't, I really don't think that that would do much good to the for the Ukrainians. But the Americans have, have been pressuring them to do more, so to speak, for Ukraine anyway. But so far the Israelis have balanced this out, going with the Americans to launch drone strikes on Iran, and at the same time refusing to send them more advanced weapon systems to Ukraine. But Bennett, in that early period last year was trying to reach some sort of agreement uh, to end the war, trying to act as intermediary, along with Erdogan as well. And uh, both of them were trying to mediate between Kiev and Moscow, even though, of course, Kiev is a cipher for this sta- at this stage. There is no independent Ukraine. It hasn't been for many, many years. But this is what they were trying to do. Now, Bennett recently gave an interview to what seems to be the Israeli equivalent of Joe Rogan. This interview that Bennett gave, which is a very, very long interview, it's five hours, it's given to a guy called Hanok Daum, who is a comedian, runs this uh, podcast, which seems to be a little bit like the Rogan show, which is that these various Israeli figures go on there and talk at length in a way that they would never do on a news program. Now Bennett, clearly not really giving a fuck, Um, just um, spilled some rather interesting details about what happened this time last year in the early stages of the war. First of all, he gives an amusing anecdote about the fact that Zelensky was hiding in a bunker. He was convinced that uh, when Putin referred to denazification, he was going to uh, denazify Zelensky by dropping some sort of bunker bust bomb on him. So he was hiding in some deep, dark... Probably Soviet-made bunker inside Kiev or maybe Lvov or somewhere and was desperately trying to uh, evade what he thought fate had in store for him. So Bennett says that he asked Putin, well, are you going to kill Zelensky? And Putin said, well, no, because I really don't think that's the way that this Russian government actually operates. I don't think they were ever going to ice Zelensky. And as time has gone on and Zelensky has become ever more erratic and bizarre in his behavior, that decision has been proven correct many times over. The more that the Zelensky is in power, the longer he is in power, the more bizarre his behavior becomes, the more of a problem he becomes for the United States, the British and the Europeans, far more of a problem than he is for the Russians. And also because of his constant need to present a victorious face to his paymasters and the idea of there being no Ukrainian retreat, he's ended up sacrificing far more men than a more sensible strategist would have done. So Zelensky as a positive boon for the Russians has been all the way through. No matter how many celebrity halos the West hangs around his head. So Putin was never going to ice Zelensky. It's a ridiculous idea, but apparently Mr. Z got that into his head that this was going to happen. So Bennett says he told Zelensky, "Look, well, he's not going to kill you. Then Zelensky ran upstairs, took a selfie and says, I am not afraid, even though he knows Zelensky very much is afraid. That's why he has to keep doing as much Colombian marching powder as he does. So that's the funny thing. Uh, Bennett, though, then goes on to talk about the early stages of the war, his attempts to act as mediator. And, of course, this overlaps with Erdogan's and Lukashenko's uh, attempts to do mediation as well. Remember, the early stages of the war saw talks between Ukraine and Russia in Belarus, and then there was, of course, the long-winded negotiations down in Istanbul, uh, which was overseen by Erdogan, and Bennett acting as sort of shuttle diplomat between Kiev and Moscow. Now, Bennett says that there were no less than 17 draft agreements that were being Worked on at various stages in that early part of the war. And that he was going between Putin and Zelensky and keeping the Europeans and the Americans informed. He says in this interview that the Europeans were taking a pragmatic approach at first. And then, of course, he says that Johnson and the British were taking a much more aggressive approach. We know that that's correct. And that Biden was basically agreeing with both of them. So, First of all, that that's an interesting reflection in that Biden was basically saying go ahead to both the Europeans and the British at the same time, which kind of points to Biden being essentially a void in that he has no, the, the, he has no independent role here. His role is to speak whatever the line that is given to him by whatever faction is currently whispering in his ear inside the White House. So an interesting revelation. The most interesting thing, though, is that Bennett claims that it was a collective decision by not just the British, not just the Americans, but also the Europeans, that the Russians could not be negotiated with and needed to be defeated. And that these agreements he was talking about all crashed when not just Johnson, but all of the NATO countries, the major leaders in the NATO countries, all agreed that this needed to be fought out to the last Ukrainian and that they could get a win over the Russians on the battlefield and that the Russians would then quit. And Bennett's revelation there, that it was all of them, wasn't just Biden or whoever's running Biden, it wasn't just Johnson, it was also Macron and Schultz and Draghi, though that's no surprise, of Italy, that were all in on battling this out and thinking that they could get a victory over the Russians and basically telling the Ukrainians to fight on and we'll supply you that's interesting because that backs up something that the former Swiss military intelligence officer a guy called Jack Beau, said in an article he wrote last autumn and that he elaborated on in an interview he did with Aaron Marte where Jack Beau said that it was The Europeans, as well as the Americans and the British, who were all agreed on the need to continue the war. Now, this also is backed up by an article, or a couple of articles, actually, from the pro-Ukraine and very much anti-Russian newspaper, the Kiev Independent, which wrote some articles which it tweeted out. You can still find them on its official Twitter feed from March of last year where the Kiev Independent reported that Johnson, and this is well reported now, this is very well established, Johnson himself has confirmed that he did this, went to Kiev to tell Zelensky that Putin must not be negotiated with under any circumstances. So we now know that Johnson was not acting against the wishes of the French and the Germans and the others in in Europe, that their reputation as being not keen on this war is undeserved, that they were all quite literally in this together, to paraphrase David Cameron, and that Johnson was the messenger boy for all of them. Maybe he was keen to play the role because if you remember this time last year, he was in a lot of domestic trouble. So he obviously saw prancing around in Kiev as a good photo call for him. But so thanks to Bennett's revelations, we can be almost certain that there was absolute unanimity within NATO. There was no disagreement at that stage of March and April last year regarding the need for the Ukrainians to continue this war. There was complete agreement from Italy, France and Germany. They didn't demur at all. They all thought, for whatever reason, that they could fund and arm Ukraine to get a victory over the Russians. So this is all very useful stuff. Now, obviously, clearly, I think Bennett's either not wanting a comeback, he's had enough of Israeli politics, or perhaps like uh, that colonel from the Mozart group, uh, Milburn, he was just uh, free sheets to the wind on this program and decided to uh, spill the beans. But it doesn't really tell us anything that we didn't suspect, but it's a, now a man who served as a head of government an important, an important place in the world, whatever you think of Israel, and my opinion's not good. But he was playing an important role, and he had access to all these leaders and knew how things were going down in terms of their calculations. Now, why does this matter? This matters because, again, it dispels the idea that Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Union, if you forgot, um, European Commission president, is acting on her own, or that Joseph Burrell is acting on his own. They're not. The idea of Schultz being unwilling or Macron being unwilling is also false. Maybe that's the impression that Macron particularly wanted to give, because he's a man who always speaks out of both sides of his mouth. But they were all in on this, and deserved to have it hanged around their necks equally. So why did they think, to revisit this subject again, that they could get some sort of win here. They had to know, clearly they had to know, if their intelligence agencies are even doing the remotest kind of accurate job, that the Ukrainian forces were not built to fight the Russian army. And I think that what has happened here is that, almost by accident, the Russian operation has ended up fooling the Europeans and the Americans into committing far more to this war than they would have done had they made a more accurate assessment. Because by going in and looking for a deal, which is what Putin was doing, and I'll be coming to why in a moment, Putin goes in looking for a, a quick arrangement that the, the independence of Donbass, the two Donbass republics, LPR and DPR, Lugansk and Donetsk People's Republics, their independence, as he had recognised earlier in that week, almost a year ago, was recognised, and that Kiev has to basically surrender them. And, of course, then commit to not joining NATO. Similar deal that he and Medvedev, when Medvedev was president, imposed when it came to the Georgian War. Because that was what happened. Um, South Ossetia was gone, not getting that back. Saakashvili, last seen eating his tie in court. And... The next guy who comes in, because it would have probably been the end of Zelensky's, well, commits not to join NATO. And that would have been it. Much to the chagrin, by the way, of both the opposition parties inside the Russian Federation, both on the left in the form of the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, and on the right in the form of the Ziranovskyites, the uh, Liberal Democrats, as they are called in in Russia, who are uh, followers of the late, rather eccentric Russian nationalist, Vladimir Ziranovsky. But also various forces inside the Russian intelligentsia, who are either nationalist aligned or maybe aligned with the Communist Party, all of whom were shouting for the destruction of the uh, pro-NATO regime in Kiev. But Putin was prepared to leave that regime in power in return for letting the Donbass go and not joining NATO. And the entire operation, again, we come back to the old Clausewitz thing, war as a continuation of policy by other means. So the beginning of the special military operation was really just there to shock the Kiev regime into giving up Donbass and giving up the NATO plan, and then the rest of it would be left as it was. And that was really the aim. And the tragic thing, from the point of view of anybody who, cares about the loss of life in this unfolding war is that it could have ended then. Had Ukraine in the form of Zelensky signed any of those deals, had any of those 17 draft agreements that Bennett is talking about turned into a reality, had Erdogan's talks succeeded, Ukraine doesn't join NATO, Donbass goes its own way, Nobody else in the world other than the Russian-aligned countries would have recognized them, but that doesn't really matter. It would have ended the Eight-Year War, and that would have been it. Putin would have got viscerally criticized by the communists, the nationalists, and everybody else inside the Russian Federation. would have dented his popularity quite severely had that gone through, I suspect. But in the end, what's actually happened is, because the various political forces inside the NATO completely misinterpreted what the Russians were doing and took it as weakness and that they could knock this force over because they must have known that the force deployed was less than 200,000. So they thought that if they built up the Ukrainian military, they could inflict enough damage on this Russian force to the point where the Russians sued for peace, Putin's destabilized, and then ultimately they get there cherished objective which is some kind of regime change inside moscow the germans get to continue getting their gas and the sanctions regime gets dropped when that awful putin is gone an enormous miscalculation and you have to wonder just um, what kind of people they're putting in these intelligence services and particularly the hierarchy in that they completely failed to do any analysis of the political situation inside russia itself in that what they seem to have been doing is listening to the relatively isolated groups of pro-American comprador types that lived and operated, and I use the past tense there, inside Moscow and St. Petersburg, the ones who did all the anti-war protests at the start of the special military operation, many of whom then either disappeared, went underground, or fled the country, when their NGO stipends got cut off. And it seems to me that what the European intelligence agencies were doing was looking at them, asking them, Well, if Putin does this, is he is he gonna be is he gonna fall apart? Is the regime gonna crumble? Can the regime fight a war? And they're all going, no boss, no boss, it's all gonna come crashing down. Navalny will be president before the end of the year or something along those lines the kind of thing that, you know, a paid agent tells his boss because he wants to keep getting his check, not accurate information. And so I think that these intelligence service chiefs probably presented to certainly Johnson, Biden, whoever the hell's handling Biden, Macron and Schultz, various options that were not based in reality, and also not based on the actual political realities inside Russia, which is that And this is something that it seems that the West collectively is incapable of analyzing, that the main forces of opposition to Putin and the Russian government that he leads have never been Navalny and his various creatures, all the Western-aligned NGO types who live in Moscow and St. Petersburg, who are widely distrusted and despised by the bulk of the Russian working class, and indeed much of the Russian middle-class population, and that the main forces of opposition are the Communist Party and various nationalist forces, either petty bourgeois or bourgeois nationalist. Those are the opposition, not Navalny, not a bunch of liberals who sit around tweeting about how terrible it is they can't go to a pussy riot concert anymore. But this is the fantasy world, which the Western intelligence services seem to live in. And it's quite a surprise, but then again, perhaps we should bear in mind the words of former CIA director William Casey, when he said that we'll have done our job when uh, most of what the American population hears is completely untrue. I'm paraphrasing that. But what seems to be the extension of Casey's old maxim is that much of what the American political class hears is completely untrue. And much of what the CIA hierarchy here is completely untrue. And they, they believe it. And so we've, we've had an example of a influencing operation recently in the form of Russiagate, where the higher up the chain you went, in actual fact, it was started as a cynical manipulation operation by the Clinton campaign. But then more and more of these clowns in Congress for cynical or self-interested reasons, not only believed it, but sustained it for years. Now the whole narrative has fallen apart. But many of them seriously over in it. And I think that they have done a, a similar thing with regard to Russia. They massively over-invested in these people that they had working for them in Western Russia and started to believe everything that they told them because they wanted to believe it. They wanted to believe that the sanctions would work. They didn't analyze the fact that the Russian government had done some very sensible things from 2014 onwards and had insulated as far as they possibly could the Russian economy from the effects of sanctions. And uh, it's been over a year now, almost a year, since the mega sanctions kicked in. They keep doing more and more things and none of it works. So they invested heavily, a lot of political capital, in believing that all this would lead to a collapse, lead to regime change, and none of it has happened. In actual fact, what it has done is it has actually pushed into existence the very thing that they said that they didn't want to happen for many years. Remember, come back to this point. Putin is exactly what he has always been. He is the man who the West wanted to some extent in the early 2000s. They wanted a Russia that would remain largely compliant, that it would be led by a sober, less erratic figure than Boris Yeltsin that it would continue to be, in the words of John McCain, a gas station run by a dictator. Remember that's not a description of Russia, that's a description of how they'd like Russia to be. And they thought they'd found their man in that Putin who was prepared to go along with George W. Bush in the early period of the war on terror but then things of course start going wrong because even though Putin is the moderate, If you look at the Russian um, forces, Russian political forces, Putin is the pro-Western moderate in that. If you look at Russian political debates on particularly telegram channels, Russian telegram channels, Putin often gets exoriated on there, or if not him directly, then various members of his cabinet. It's like the old days of not criticizing the Tsar, but his bad advisers who are pro-Western, who are slaves to the US, who aren't taking tough enough action, who are a bunch of pussies, who won't unleash the full might of the Russian army. That's the oppositional opinion. But Putin's evolution, of course, and represented by the move of the Russians against the Iraq war, then the Georgian war, which of course was mostly Medvedev's doing, more so than Putin. In actual fact, Medvedev took the decision to launch the operation in 2008. And again, the projection onto him of being a pro-Western character was, again, that was complete wishful thinking. It was a total fantasy from Obama and Hillary Clinton. A fantasy that Obama creates in his own mind under the influence of, like, Michael McFaul and people like that. But Putin evolves as Russian capitalism strengthens, but also as the various political forces inside Russia start to crystallize again and gain strength. Remember, Communist Party has been the second party in the Russian Duma for 30 years. They've run regional governments. Gennady Zuganov should have been the president in 1996, but was cheated out of it. So these are a major political force. And the Western countries and their so-called intelligence men just don't look at them at all. And because if they had have done and looked at them and the nationalist forces, they'd have realized that all the pressure on the Russian government was not coming from these compradors in Moscow and St. Petersburg. It was coming from various different forms of anti-US opinion, pro-Russian nationalist opinion, or in the case of the KPRF, the Russian communists, a pro-Soviet revanchist opinion which is, of course, the opinion that the KPRF has, the Belarusians have, uh, which is the regard to the reconstruction of the Soviet Union, an opinion that I have a lot of sympathy with. But complete failure to take into account the actual forces on the ground inside the Russian political sphere led to this enormous miscalculation. So this miscalculation, which has now had confirmation come in from multiple different sources, from Bennett, from Jacques Beau, from the Kiev Independent, from Boris Johnson himself, all confirming that this was a joint European effort. And again, to return to von der Leyen, von der Leyen is so out there and over the top in terms of her, you know, screeching away at you know the evil Russians and we will stand with Kiev to the end. Well she's doing that because again, without German capitalism and French capitalism and Italian capitalism, but particularly Germany. Without German capitalism, there is no European Union. It's an empty vessel. There's nothing there without German capitalism being invested. And so if Ursula von der Leyen is making all these statements, as is Joseph Burrell, whilst he's drunkenly wandering around the European garden, if they're making all these statements and making all these commitments, it's because German capitalism, in the form of the German state, as being the representatives of German capitalism, is on board with this. And Schultz being, you know, reluctant or anything like that, well, he may be on some level, but the bulk of Germany's political forces were all on board with this, and Schultz right there with them. Either he doesn't oppose it, he's in favour of it, or he's just so weak and pathetic he's got no means of opposing it. Either way, Germany is all in on this. I think that the idea of Schultz as this weakling who's been taken hostage by biden and johnson and sunak and various other forces that's a false narrative schultz was on board with this now does raise the question of what the hell the germans thought were going to happen to their gas supply i think that they figured well whoever gets in is going to sell to us that's the reality of what was going on here that's the reality of the shallow and ridiculous calculations that they were making so now we know that Yet again, more confirmation has been given to us about the role of the European Union, about the enthusiasm of the leaders of Europe for this war, them all being on board for essentially what amounted to a regime change operation mounted against Russia, well, leads to the question of, well, could any of these peace initiatives actually stuck? Could any of this have been avoided? And that leads us to a much bigger question which is, at this stage, can these proxy wars, drifting dangerously close to real shooting wars, between the leading imperialist power on the planet, the United States, and its vassal state, Britain, and its other vassal states in the form of France and Germany, can, it, these, can this imperial bloc actually reach peaceful settlements than anything now? And what I mean by that is, was this peace plan viable at any point? And the answer has to be no. And the reason why the answer is no is, as I've said before, it is partly down to the instability inside Ukraine itself, which is, of course, very much a divided place. The Ukrainian capitalist class has completely failed to do any kind of national project there to actually build a stable Ukrainian state, to build a Polity that can stand up to even the slightest pressure to build any kind of united citizenship. It's failed on all those accounts. It has just spent 30 years lining its own pockets, covering its own arse, and stealing as much as they possibly can. And this is the result. The Ukrainian state, as it is constituted now, could not have agreed to those terms and remained a state. If they had agreed to them, even if, if we indulge in a fantasy for a moment, even if the Americans and the British and Europeans have said, right, you can join the EU, just not NATO. We'll give you all the security guarantees. The nature of the Ukrainian capitalist class would not have changed, nor would joining the EU have changed any of those problems that the Ukrainian, Ukrainian capitalism has. If anything... All that would have happened was an acceleration of the looting of the country by like, BlackRock and the other Wall Street firms, the various different agribusiness companies buying up Ukrainian land, and you would have got an even more rapid hollowing out of the Ukrainian economy and society than, you, than you're getting now, and a more comprehensive one at that. The instability inside Ukraine would probably have remained or got worse, because Zelensky would probably not have survived giving up Donbass without a fight. The various different nationalist forces, if somebody didn't come in and deal with them, and by that I mean either arrest, arrest or eliminate the leadership of them, break them up, well, the Ukrainian state as it stands can't do that, because many of these forces are integrated into the police and army structure, though There are a lot of purges going on now, which would seem to be somewhat reducing their influence. But as it was constituted last year, the Ukrainian state would have collapsed into a mess, I think, if it had agreed to those peace terms. So the Ukrainian state wasn't in a position to actually agree to these terms. Even if Zelensky had agreed to it, there would possibly have been an internal revolt. There would have been all kinds of problems. Maybe a coup. Certainly a coup against Zelensky had been threatened by these various neo-fascist, banderite forces that make up the knuckle-dragging boot boys of this government, or more specifically, the knuckle-dragging boot boys of the United States. They are its agents on the ground, after all. But take it out wider than that. Zoom out, shall we say. Is US imperialism in a position at this time last year to actually sign deals? More to the point, given the state of US imperialism, Could it have agreed to any bargain with the Russians this time last year? And the answer is no. US imperialism is too unstable to actually agree to peace deals now. Its political regime is too unstable. Its president is incapable. The previous president was essentially subjected to a soft coup and had his ability to make policy, particularly when it came to relations with the Russians. That ability was removed from him by a concocted scandal that was made up by British and American intelligence assets, but which was successful in removing his ability to actually create policy. If you think about that, that is an unstable political structure inside the United States, as further evidenced by the balloon gate of the last few days, the balloon scandal, which I'll talk about separately, but it underlines the instability and the ridiculousness of the United States government. What is going on is that the US is in a protracted period of economic decline. And that decline has been going on since the middle 1960s. They were saved from that decline, as discussed in the interview I did recently with Jyoti Brar. If you haven't listened to that, be sure to do so, because we talk about that at in some more detail, but in brief, U.S. capitalism is on the slide by the middle 1980s. It's been on the slide for quite some time. It is saved from a situation where it would have to wage an ever more vicious class war than it already was on the working class of America by the collapse of the USSR and their ability to range around the world hyper-exploiting natural resources and labor in a way that they weren't able to do before that collapse, that saves US capitalism. That gives it another 30 odd years. Though in reality, it lasted 18 years before a catastrophic disaster occurred in 2008 from which it hasn't recovered. You are now in the 15th year since the Great Recession of 2008. And what is occurring now is this prolonged period of decline and collapse of the U.S. state. Now that might be somewhat hyperbolic if you just listen to that and don't look at the wider problems. U.S. state is dysfunctional. It was a profound dysfunctionality that produced Trump in the first place and then removed his ability to govern effectively, then put in place a dementia patient. When that happens, that's not a sign of a state which is doing well, any of those things are a sign of a state which is doing profoundly badly so the decay in the economic base the drastic decline in the manufacturing base of America the pivot over to hyper financialization the crash of that financialized economy and the creation of even more debt and fictitious capital to try and bail it out of that problem all of this is in the mix and over the long term, contributes to a massive decline in the quality of the personnel inside the American state. If you look at the people who are running it and they all seem stupid and or insane, it's because this decay of the economic base filters through into the state, into the intelligentsia, and into the culture over time. And this is what happens, the changes in the material base of capitalist societies take time to filter through fully into the state structure, into the intelligentsia, into the wider culture. But if American culture seems awful, if American politics seems deranged, if the American state seems increasingly bizarre, then that is because the American economic base is rotting away and at the moment there is no sign that anybody at the top of the American state structure is able to do anything about it Biden's well whoever does Biden's tweets is boasting about more manufacturing jobs created than at any point since 1775 or something but then again if the previous free administrations uh, lost and shed manufacturing jobs constantly and Biden does a net positive in terms of creating some, a net positive of, say, one, then he's been the most successful administration in terms of creating manufacturing jobs since the 80s. So take this with a pinch of salt. But the dysfunctionality, the inability to actually stick by any agreements, the inability to conduct diplomacy in a most basic way, either with the Russians or the Chinese, points to the fact that the American state is in crisis because its economic base is rotting away. And that pushes it towards the point where, as we've discussed before, American capitalism, American imperialism, needs to find a way of eliminating its closest rivals in order that their territories can be plundered and that this can be a way in which American capitalism restores itself. Because what they're looking for is, of course, to, again, take the example of Russia. What they're looking for there is a way to essentially either weaken the Russian state to the point where American capital can essentially loot the entire country unrestricted, or cause some sort of fragmentation of the country. I think what they would ideally have liked is a quick coup against Putin, some dictatorial figure comes in. They, again, they just want another sober Yeltsin who, is then a, who then turns the country over to them and they are then able to effectively loot it unrestricted. And it's the same with China as well. And this is what lies behind all the provocations with regard to Taiwan, the Americans are engaging in. What they want to do is provoke the Chinese to invade Taiwan, maybe use the Japanese as a force against them, and then hope that the Chinese get cut off from the world market, hope that their economy collapses, hope that the Chinese government implodes, hope that the Communist Party of China disappears, and then, well, they can either return China to the period that it was um, split up between various warlords in the Republic of China period in the 1920s, or that some new dictator can come in who's weak, and again, that America can then get a better deal, to quote Donald Trump, out of the Chinese, and more effectively exploit the country for the purposes of the profit of American imperialism. Those are the aims. To eliminate their closest rivals, ideally via proxy wars, and profit from the results. Because they know very well, as I've said before, that the prospect of American forces actually fighting Russians or Chinese armed forces up close and personal, they know very well that in most cases the outcome that they've gamed out, that the Pentagon has gamed out, isn't necessarily very favorable for the American forces in that scenario. So their ideal is some kind of proxy war with the Chinese using Taiwan and Japan, and maybe with the Americans providing like air cover or naval cover or something because the Americans just simply can't get enough men to the area to uh, respond to what they would hope would be a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, that they could then bog down, that the the ultra-sanctions that they would put on the Chinese would kill the Chinese economy stone dead, and then they would be able to basically loot the rest of the country. So this is the desire of the leading circles of American policymakers. And remember, the only distinction between like the MAGA Republicans on the one hand and the DSA Democrats on the other is that one side wants to go after Russia first and exclusively Russia. That's their obsession. And the other side wants to go after China. That's the division. That's the debate that's going on inside the American political system. The debate isn't should any of this be done. The debate is which one should we do first? And so that was the concern of the recent RAND Corporation report that the Americans getting bogged down in Ukraine is going to affect their ability to create some kind of situation they hope will ensnare the, the Chinese and destroy them. So that's the, that's the debate between the political forces in Washington. It's not a positive thing that there's this debate. The only way that this could be positive is if the internal weaknesses inside American bourgeois democracy create a situation where they can't do either. But at the moment, this this is the dividing line. Shoot down the balloon and go to war with the Chinese or provoke a war with the Chinese or ignore the balloon and focus on fighting to the last Ukrainian. There's your division. And that reflects the priorities of American imperialism exactly. They have to take out one or both of their closest rivals in terms of power and in terms of position in the global economy. And that priority for American imperialism is not going to change. There are people who believe that some kind of peace settlement can be reached, that if we just get less crazy politicians in there, that if Donald Trump comes back, he'll be able to settle something. Well, no. The fact is this. If things stay as they are, then American imperialism may well dump Zelensky and basically call it a draw and try and get the hell out of Ukraine. But then the pressure will be on immediately to go after China. And American imperialism has no choice here. Remember, all the way back in 1847 to 48, when Marx and Engels write the Communist Manifesto, one of the lines in there that's particularly powerful is when Marx compares the capitalist to a sorcerer who conjures up forces that he cannot possibly control. This is capitalism summed up in a sentence. And not only does it refer to the capitalist who conjures up these forces that they cannot control, it refers to the political leaders who conjure up forces that they cannot control. And at the moment, what we're looking at is, of course, is an American state which is caught in the horns of a dilemma and that it's got two rivals that it wants to destroy and can't agree on a strategy for either one. We can only hope that barring a revolution inside the United States itself, which overthrows the imperialist state, that this division within imperialism remains and paralyzes them and leaves them unable to do either. That would be a better scenario. But this idea that a change in the president, a change in the composition of Congress, is going to affect any of this, this is a... Fallacy. A complete fallacy. The American state is a reflection of the profound crisis of American capitalism. American imperialism had a 30-year run, almost 30 years, where it could do almost anything it wanted to, though with increasing levels of opposition. Until finally, of course, they got hit in the face by the Russians and the Iranians when they were able to successfully intervene in Syria to stop the hired guns of American imperialism in the form of the jihadists. And the fact that American imperialism and its various political and intellectual representatives have been just foaming at the mouth for almost 10 years now, eight years since the major operation the Russians conducted in Syria began, which thwarted the Obama administration's wish to turn Syria into Libya. Well, the reason why they're foaming at the mouth so much about that was because, of course, this was all crucial for... American capitalism, American capitalism needed to keep knocking down all these countries that had even like a slither of sovereignty left in the world. Because, again, the ability to control any of your own natural resources and be able to set terms of trade, which are just not complete um, submission, well, all of that is a mortal danger to American capitalism. American capitalism depends upon being able to dictate uh, terms of uh, economic engagement, terms of trade, which are completely exploitative. And if they can't get that out of you, then they'll coup you out. If they can't coup you out, they'll create a civil war to dispose of you. And they were denied that in Syria, which is, of course, really where the Russia phobia comes from. Again, not just you know madness in terms of the American political class. It comes from a real place. It comes from them being thwarted inside eastern Ukraine, by Russian intervention into Crimea and Russian support for the Donbass militias in resisting the Ukrainian forces, because the Americans had the idea that if they could just knock over the uh, Donbass militias, if they could overcome them, then the Ukrainian army that they were going to retrain would be right on the Russian border in terms of of, uh, also being able to push the Russians out of that naval base in Crimea, something which, by the way, no Russian president would ever agree to. But the, the the thwarting in Syria outraged the liberals and their various different appendages even more uh, than the Crimean thing did, even though, of course, that obsesses them as well. So Russia and China being there, Russia thwarting them in Syria and in Ukraine repeatedly, and the Chinese being as large as they are in terms of economic weight now to the point where Many countries have alternatives in terms of who they deal with. All of this is a mortal danger to American imperialism and, of course, its various puppet states, though some of them are more split on this than others. Like the Germans, for instance, might have gone along with the regime change operation in Russia, but they are increasingly looking rather worried about the relationship with the Chinese and the German industry needs that relationship. They get a lot of the parts for the Manufactured goods that they assemble in Germany don't come from Germany. They come from China and they need that relationship because they don't have alternative sources of construction for their production line. Which is why Schultz went over to Beijing and tried to make nice with Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping looks at him the same way a man looks at a dung beetle, uh, which is rather amusing. But again, the American imperialists are threatened by these rising powers And this is the result, and it can't be any other way under this system. There can't be a system of peaceful ultra-imperialism, to draw from Karl Kautsky, which many people who comment on these things, who analyse these things, seem to believe that there is a path towards some kind of grand bargain, to borrow from Obama's phrasing, between Russia and China and America, whereby the Americans just agree to decline. That's not the case. The American empire can't just agree to decline. The best we can hope for, again, I'll say this openly, is either somehow the American imperial state, American capitalism, is overthrown by the American working class, or it remains dysfunctional and paralyzed and unable to do anything. Those are the two alternatives for us at the moment in terms of positive outcomes. Now, American capitalism will need, and indeed it already is, to go on the attack against the American working class. That's why you've got scumbags like Mike Pence floating around going, we need to look at social security. They want to privatise the American social security system and loot it uh, in order to boost profits. That's what they want to do. It's what they've wanted to do for over 30 years. And they are now in a position where the completely parasitic American capitalist class is now eyeing that up as one of their big targets. And their hired man, Mike Pence, is the one, well, one of the politicians who's fronting this up. They'll have Democrats doing it too. Always good to come at it from both angles to give the illusion of choice. So attacks on the American working class will step up. There's more of them incoming. If the Republicans try and have a go openly at Social Security, you can expect at least a portion of the Democratic Party to pretend to be in favor of preserving it, but not actually be in favor of preserving it. So there's major assaults on American workers coming. Hopefully this will mean that the American working class can launch a fight back, can actually start to organize on a bigger and better basis than has been seen over the last 15 years since the great uh, collapse of 2008, because the various iterations of the American left that have popped up since then have all proven to be completely and utterly useless. But it is within the American working class that a lot of the solutions to this lie. Yes, the Russians and the Chinese can stymie the American imperialists and frustrate them either on the battlefield or in the field of geopolitical competition. But ultimately, the answer here lies within the American working class itself, which is only going to get poorer and poorer as time goes on and the attacks of the American capitalist class get more intense. And so it is there that the answer lies to all of this, just as it is within the British working class, the French working class, and the German working class to take apart these various decaying bits of the American Imperium. It is within the capacity of ourselves to take this down and end this profoundly dangerous state of affairs that the world now finds itself in. And it is to that that I will be returning to as we go through the programs that I'm going to be putting out this week. So until next time, thank you for listening. Be sure to go to the website, the Marx-Engels Institute website. That's just the address, marxengelsinstitute.org. Go on there and see the most recent essay, which is entitled Sound and Fury. It's an analysis of the debate around woke versus anti-woke. It's the first of a series of articles that I'll be putting together on the subject over the next few weeks or so and be sure to go to the patreon page if you haven't already and you want to support the program and the project we're building here you can find a lot of uh, patreon only content on there if you want to subscribe but until next time then i thank everybody for listening and i will be speaking to you again very soon